0: Today we're joined by Congressman John Rutherford, representing Florida's 4th Congressional District. A career law enforcement officer, he spent 41 years with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, first as a sheriff's deputy and the final 12 years as the elected sheriff. His experience makes him a strong advocate for policing. He's here today to talk about the state of law enforcement in today's environment and how Congress is tackling some of these most pressing issues facing law enforcement, community, Violent crime. I'm Patrick Yos, National President of the Eternal Order Police, and this is the Blue View. Congressman Rutherford, thank you for joining us. But also, thank you for being such a staunch supporter of law enforcement. Your, your background lends to that. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, thank you, Patrick. It, it's great to be with the FOP, and uh, you know, I, I will tell you, I joined the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, uh, which is a a unique consolidated government agency. So. Uh, the county sheriff's office and the police are the same, and uh, in fact, our cars were very unique. We had police down the back and sheriff on the side, and and people would look at that and they're like, "What are you guys? <laughs> we're consolidated." That's great. So I joined that agency in 1974 and worked my way through the ranks, um, eventually running for the office of sheriff. And I was elected in 2003, uh, 7 and 11. And so I served for 12 years as sheriff in, in Jacksonville. Well, you saw,
0: obviously, a, a, a pretty substantial change in in your 41 years of law enforcement, how it has evolved over time. Uh, in addition to that, you also have a very, uh, very impressive track record of, of such a, a drastic reduction in crime during your time as sheriff. Uh, could you talk a little bit about just, just some of what the observations you've seen over that period of
1: time and, and yeah. how our profession has evolved? Yeah, I, I will tell you, Patrick. I, I think the, the most important uh, element that we employed there in Jacksonville, which saw those historic drops in violent crime and murder uh, particularly, was because we we attacked the, the crime problem with what I like to refer to as the whole pie, yeah. P-I-E. It it was prevention, it was intervention, and then it was enforcement. And I'll tell you, I had a great mayor, uh, John Payton, who worked with me for the first eight years. And uh, we we had some great success because he bought into the idea of the prevention side. And then I had a great uh, state attorney who was our prosecutor, and she was very tough on crime. And then we had intelligence-led policing, community policing uh, in Jacksonville. We had a, a an initiative called SHATCO, the Sheriff's Advisory Council. I had over three thousand members of my community that met with our with my leadership team uh, every month. And so, all three of those, I, I will tell you, I think all three of those are important. And in your jail, your Department of Corrections works. Really intimately in that process, because uh, as you know, a, a lot of our crime problem is drug related and right. mental health related. Right, and so we had one of the best, I think, in jail drug treatment programs in the country uh, called Matrix House, and it was really police, the the sheriff's office, the mental health community, and then the mil- the community providers working with us and uh the mayor was very supportive of of all that and we instituted a, a an issue or really a program that we uh c- called community transition where people continuity of care moving out of our jail into mental health treatment continuing their drug treatment that they began inside our facility and uh, we saw tremendous drops in our recidivism rates as a result of that. Well,
0: uh, it's it's impressive—a forty-year low in crime—and and you bring you bring up such a such an important point in that it 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 truly is much more than just an enforcement issue. I mean, it really is. you talking about the health of a community is really what what makes uh, is. It's all part of a of a puzzle, and it takes a, a lot of uh different moving parts in order to be able to 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 tackle crime and poverty and all the things that that uh, that that do create uh, havoc on communities.
1: Exactly, Patrick. And and look at what's going on in some of these cities where we have these very liberal district attorneys or state attorneys who are quite frankly, some of them not even doing their job. And they're putting these violent offenders back out on the street immediately. Uh, no wonder they're, they're having historic murder rates all, all over some of these major cities where these uh, district attorneys are, employed
0: well it does and and no question we see city after city after city at the same time uh you know i often say you can look across this country and see cities they get it too
1: they yep. get it because they have yep. that
0: working relationship where everybody's invested in trying to we all want the same thing at the end of the day and that right. is to have safe communities and, and you know law enforcement jobs to be safe right uh, and,
1: and during this and during this spike you can also look to other cities these spikes aren't everywhere Exactly, crime is going down in a lot of cities. Crime went down in Jacksonville. Violent yeah. crime went down in Jacksonville. Yeah,
0: I, I've I had a number of conversations with uh, in the media and also individuals where we're talking about, you know, what's the difference in crime? Why is it going up? And and, and the reality is is let's look at the cities where the places where they have the 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 largest increase uh, is cities that are not working together to try and combat the problem as a as a holistic approach. Exactly. And trying to we're actually working uh, actually de-policing the police while decriminalizing the criminals in and a lot of cases. You're
1: funding the police and yeah. and those sorts of things. Um, it, it, because look, that three legged stool that I talked about: in prevention, intervention, and enforcement. Yeah. You cut any one of those legs off, and and that stool is going to fall over. You know, uh, that three legged stool just
0: will work. No, absolutely. It's, and, and, and it's much greater than just a crime issue. It's a poverty exactly. issue. It's broken exactly. family units. It's education. All of these things are, are a holistic approach to it. You know, yeah. I spent a lot of time in Jacksonville, uh, recently. I, I, really have come to, to really admire that place, especially along, the along the coast. Yeah. Uh, but you, what are your, what are your, uh, what are your law enforcement officers, your constituents saying back home about policing, uh, and
1: the challenges that we have? Well, I I can, as you just said, uh, Patrick, it's, it's very unique to the individual cities that you go to, uh, Jacksonville didn't go through the, the funding and, you know, I, have seen a tremendous amount of demoralization around the country. And, and some of that even reached to Jacksonville, uh, our officers felt unappreciated, uh, quite frankly, being attacked. Um, and, and some of their livelihood being attacked with all the talk about you know qualified immunity which was probably one of the most uh, maligned uh concepts of of qualified immunity that what they described was not qualified immunity what they described was sovereign immunity right they kept saying you can't sue the police. Well, that that's absolutely not true. You know that as well as no, I do. No, absolutely. Let's come
0: back to that one. I have okay. argued for quite some time now, and I think you'll you'll agree, having been spent forty one years in law enforcement, that uh, that really what we need in order to be able to sustain and, and grow as a as a profession is to have the best and brightest. Victim right. professional law enforcement, right. Uh, come in and carry the torch. And, you know, we really are, you know, we, we represent our communities. We live in our communities. We, sure. you know, we very much invested in, uh, in, in the success of our communities and we need the best and brightest to step up. Yeah. But it, I also see what's happening across this country. And, and, and it's real hard to attract the best and brightest with the instability. When you talk about qualified immunity and all of the other things that you attacks on law enforcement, the best and brightest can find jobs elsewhere.
1: Right. And, so, and look, I, I tell people that the qualified immunity is really the cornerstone I think of state and local law enforcement, because that is, the, that is the guarantee. You know, for 41 years, I was willing to step into that breach between the bad guys in my community and the good folks that I was hired to protect. And I was willing to step into that breach between them because I understood because of qualified immunity, as long as I went into that breach, I followed the law. I followed my policy, my agency policy, and I acted exactly as I was trained by my agency. I knew that my family's financial future was secure. And so I was willing to take that risk and go in there. But but if you were to take that away, officers are not going to run into that breach. You know, when the bullets are flying and the and the blood is flowing, they're not going to run into that breach if they think their family's financial future is at stake. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, I always... You know and when I
0: get into these discussions about qualified immunity and 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 people have a misconception of what it is. Oh, they I mean it does do. not protect bad cops in fact we show that it does not. Right. Uh, what it does is it protects law enforcement officers <laughs> that are using training and policy and sound judgment
1: in tense situations. Right. And and, ju- and and here's here's an important element of this conversation too I think and that is that the police officer gets sued he gets sued but a judge a judge that knows the law right. looks at the fact pattern of that case and and says okay this officer followed the law he followed his agency's policy he followed his training that officer qualifies for immunity
0: right and, and, and there's, uh, you know, uh, some analysis have shown that as much as 40% are denied. So it, it shows that the system does work. There are exactly. checks and balances. Exactly. You know, often, uh, you know, talk about qualified immunity and, you know, put it in perspective. That, uh, we're all, we all have jobs. Everyone has a job to do. And you know, regardless of what profession you're in, you have a job. The difference is, is that a law enforcement officer doesn't get to pick and choose the jobs that he's going to do. If he is right. dispatched to a call. He doesn't have the right to be able to say, you know i, I I've done a I'm quick, not take that. I could take I've done a quick <laughs> assessment and determine that they may be a use of force, and therefore I might put my family in, in a hardship by responding, so I, therefore right. I decline. We right. don't have that, that luxury. So you're asking right. law enforcement officers to do they're ordinary people asked to do some pretty extraordinary things at times. yeah, and uh, there, there needs to be some some protections uh, that if they're doing right. if they're doing things based on policy and training, Uh, We do the very things hard to do.
1: And it's not unique to law enforcement. Qualified immunity also applies to teachers and in other professions exactly. as well exactly you know you've uh you, you've been
0: a staunch supporter for law enforcement issues clearly because of your uh your background and uh, you know we, we certainly do appreciate uh, the voice that you have lend to us in congress and continue your public service after 41 years and in, in law right. enforcement you've done a you've done a good job of working across the aisle uh, in washington which at times can be pretty politically volatile, volatile. Uh, but you've been uh, you. You've you have a, a number of bills that you work collectively, uh, to, to get, you know, to, to introduce and, and hopefully one of them, one of them's our top priority and that's the protected serve act. uh,
1: right. working,
0: working with, uh, representative Gottmar- Gottheimer. Right. Uh, and, and if you could just, uh, just help, help everyone yeah. understand
1: exactly what the protected service is. Well, you know, to, to give you a little, uh, context for w- why I work the way I do, uh, trying to work across the aisle, you know, when when I was first elected sheriff in two thousand three, I had a bill that uh, I I drafted, took to the state legislature there in Florida, and I wanted to get this bill passed because it was going to deal with the severely addicted and mentally ill in my community, and, and it dealt, excuse me, it dealt with the um, uh, plea process, and and so I I took that bill to the Florida Sheriffs Association Legislative Committee. And I, and I tried to get them to run the bill and, you know, I presented it at the legislative committee hearing and they're like, look, sorry, there's just no room on the agenda. Now I know I've got a great bill. So I'm like, well, look, let me run it myself. You know, and they're like, okay, just don't get sideways with us. You know, I'm like, okay, uh, well I ran that bill and it failed. And what I, what I realized through that experience, Patrick, is I got back to Jacksonville and I'm thinking, what the heck just happened? I got a bill that's going to save lives. It's going to save money. And I couldn't get it passed. And what dawned on me was I had all kinds of relationships back in Jacksonville. I had a lot of networks developed, but I didn't have them in the state legislature. So I spent the next year going to the state legislature, meeting the members, meeting their staff, even more importantly, as you know, yeah, and uh, and really built those relationships the next year. Went to the legislative committee again, still no room on the agenda. I said, let me run it again. Well, this, this time it flies through the House, it flies through the legislature, and Jeb Bush signed it into law. Right. At the end of that session, the executive director for FSA came to me and said, hey, John, the legislative committee just elected you chairman. <laughs> so, so I became chairman of the legislative committee for the Florida Sheriff's Association. and. We had tremendous success. Normally you do that for a year or two. I did it for almost nine years. And so I had tremendous success because I had all those relationships and networks built. So the first thing I did when I got to Washington, D.C. was I wanted to start reaching across the aisle and building those relationships because that's the key to legislation. This, This whole legislative process is being able to work across the aisle. So two things that I did. Number one, I joined the bipartisan working group, which is a fantastic group of Republicans and Democrats that come together every week trying to figure out how we can work together. Second thing is I made a commitment. You know, you mentioned Josh Gottheimer, who's on this bill. Every bill I file, I reach across the aisle to the committee of jurisdiction and try to find a member from the other side of the aisle that will be a primary, not just a co-sponsor, but their name goes on that bill with my name. And as a result, I I think that's why we've had some great success. Yeah. You know, I've always said that, uh,
0: really at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you do it really is all about the relationship you built around it. So, 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 so so, uh, poignant, uh, words and, and, you know, uh The Protected Serve Act, I think there's some misconception of what it is. So in, in your words, uh, could you just, uh, just explain exactly what the purpose of this bill is?
1: Sure. Look, what, when you look at the number of ambushes, for example, of law enforcement officers at the state, local, Ohio, and federal,
0: 115% over the previous year. Last year was 115% more than the previous year. So there's
1: definitely a, a trend
0: there. So yeah. just to make that point. And,
1: and so what I wanted to do, was I wanted to target the bad guys that were targeting my men and women out there. Exactly. And it, Well, not mine anymore, but uh, well, they're still, they mine. Are. they're still, they're, yours. they're still mine. I, I think about them as mine. So what this bill does is it enhances the penalties for those who, uh, direct violence toward, uh, men and women in uniform. Yeah. I know there's some misconceptions that this would be
0: just creating another class, uh, of uh of, of crime but it, but in reality it, it's not it has to meet certain criteria in order for it to for the right. for it, it to to become a federal right
1: and it's a sentencing bill and right. there's got to be that that um it's got to be that uh segue into the into the federal uh violation yeah
0: with a, without a doubt, it is one of our priorities. It's something that desperately needed. Uh, when we see some of the things that are happening, the heart-wrenching things that are happening across this country, of law enforcement officers are just sim- simply being attacked because of the color of their uniform. There definitely right. needs to be something, something right. done. And we hope, hope that if, Congress if you're going to target men
1: and women in blue,
0: we need to target you. Well, absolutely, absolutely. You know, you talk about working across the aisle, and and, and uh, you know, uh, Congressman Gottheimer is is uh, you know, is with you on another bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, that bill is the Invest and Protect Act. Can you talk a little bit about that one?
1: You know, when you look at the different sizes of agencies and who's able to go after some of these grants, right. the challenge is some of the smaller agencies they simply don't have the the economic so wherewithal true. to go after those grants. So true. Yes. And so what this bill does is it sets aside uh, grants for those uh, smaller agencies, two hundred or less, to to help them. Through the grant process. Yeah,
0: often the ones who need the help are the ones that are at least in the position to be able to to help themselves. Uh, exactly. So and, it, and, it does make does make the process a little yeah. easier. So, uh, yeah. You know, another and, and, one, and I got to yeah. tell you,
1: Josh reached out to me on that. Yeah, that's great. So, that's great. Yeah, it's and, and we came together and now, and we, you know, and, and there were some things that I didn't like in the bill originally, but Josh worked with me and, and we got it to where we were both very happy and comfortable. It's, a, it's an interesting
0: concept, working together yeah, and find it, a solution. How odd. Often we, we lose that in today's society now. Yeah, it's just too a, much. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you, you have another one, uh, you know, Homes for Every Local uh, Protector, Educator, and Responder called the Helpers Act. Right. Uh, and uh, your your neighboring uh, congressman, uh, Al Lawson uh, from Florida also, is uh, is on that one as well. Can you give us a little yeah, bit Yeah,
1: the, the, the Helper Act was really uh, an outreach to try and help uh, first responders purchase uh, their first home. or per- Well, a one- it's a one-time purchase of a home. They, they get to use it once. It doesn't have to be their first home. Uh, but, but what it does is it allows them to get in uh, with no money down, and some of the fees are waived. It, it's, it's very similar to a, to a program in, in under uh, FHA. And so Sam Royer brought, brought this, uh, this idea to me. And, um, uh, and I thought it was a fantastic idea and, and we built that together and, uh, yeah,
0: that's I, great. Well, that
1: well, I, I, again, I'm going to thank you for,
0: for being such a, such a, a strong advocate for law enforcement. Uh, these are three very important bills and, and wish you, uh, absolute success with it. To protect and serve is one of our highest priorities. So, uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you for, for doing that. You know, we, we started talking, uh, in the beginning, uh, about a real problem in America. And we see it happening, and it has to do with rogue prosecutors that are refusing to to enforce the law. Law enforcement officers are out. We we don't make laws. We don't get to pick and choose the ones that we're going to enforce. Others do that. Uh separation of powers, you know, puts us in a position to right. an enforcement side of it. Yet we have prosecutors who are legislating from their uh from that position as as prosecutors and and creating a revolving door. I, I think we all agree, and and, and certainly the fraternal of police has been a big part. Of talking about uh, changes within the criminal justice system and making mm-hmm. it more fair and equitable, but at the same time, it has to be done in a way that it doesn't make doesn't make our communities and our jobs less safe. And talk a little bit about your views of what we see happening across <laughs> this country with uh, with prosecutors that are are really doing a disservice to to the people that they uh, that they're you know elected to to serve.
1: No, they, they they really are, and and I think what we have to be most careful about. In, in this situation, Patrick is is not looking to the federal government to fix this. These are local problems. Exactly. They're, in fact, I see way too much uh, of a move to nationalize state and local law enforcement, and that's something that scares me to death. Uh, I don't want to see a national police, and so uh, you know we have to keep that in mind when we're when we uh, try to address some of these issues like you're talking about with the district attorneys and the state attorneys, uh, don't look for a federal answer. That, that's a home rule, that's a state's rights issue, and and they need to address that. Yeah. Now, there's certainly ways that we can help, but, but I'll tell you another way that I see this nationalization uh, being played out, and that's through funding mechanisms, which is one of the reasons this, uh, the, I thought Josh had a great idea, helping those smaller agencies that the the idea that we're going to use money uh, grants, the DOJ is going to use grants to force agencies to do certain things. And and I give you a great example. It just went through the appropriations process that we still haven't passed yet, but there was in, in the criminal justice uh, appropriation, there was uh, efforts to put all of the George Floyd Justice Act restrictions on law enforcement into that appropriations bill that would force agencies to, to do many things, some of which I even agree with. But it shouldn't be done at the national level. It should be done at the state level. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I, I tried to strip all that out with an amendment. Uh, it -hmm. failed. It passed with those restrictions in there, but those strings that they put on, uh, for example, uh, they really basically federally defunded law enforcement grants because nobody's going to be able to meet all the restrictions that they've put in there. Uh, because laws have to get passed for some of this, uh, no knock warrants. They want to outlaw no-knock warrants. Well, law enforcement agencies don't pass laws. We talked about that earlier. Exactly. Uh, you know, a law that you have to teach de-escalation. I have no problem with that. Every My agency teaches uh, de-escalation. Uh, those sorts of things. Uh, ban, they have to have a law banning the lateral vascular neck restraint. Uh, those, those types of strings that they want to attach to federal grants, I'm opposed to that. You know, most, uh, you know, the vast majority of law
0: enforcement in this country are local or state uh, or state exactly. uh, agencies and and, and uh, really I think that's what gives us our our strength as a nation because our 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 uh, accountability is at those local levels. Right. But well, we find ourselves in a lot of cities now that are electing prosecutors uh, based off of a lot of money for this social injustice and social reform that are actually hurting the very communities that they claim that they're 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 out there to uh, to help. And we see it time and time and time again, when you have a, a violent offender that is arrested, uh, and taken off the streets by law enforcement only to be put back on by, 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 you know, by, by bail reform or, or lowered, uh, or lowered bonds, uh, and just, and, and we're seeing them you know reoffend over and over and over again, clearly something's not working here and something right. has to give, um, and I agree that this is a local function, but there is some things that I think the federal government can do. I'd, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on it. Uh, where we have cities where prosecutors are refusing to prosecute, then uh, this, this violent crime, especially gun crime, yeah. the federal government needs to step up and,
1: and, and start taking on yeah. these
0: cases uh, so that we can. Well, listen,
1: I, I think if you look at some of these cases, Patrick, I'm, I'm not sure that they wouldn't qualify for a malfeasance or a misfeasance uh, charge. I, and, I, I don't and, disagree with you on and, that. And I, that needs to be yeah. that needs to be looked at. That is the process well, that, it that t- exists right now. We don't need to change. We don't need to create any federal law. Yeah. No, those I, abilities I, yeah. are there now, and they need to take action. Well, we all took an oath of office,
0: right, you know, from a law enforcement exactly. officer to the prosecutor, uh, that we would, uh, that we would, we would, you know, follow the Constitution. United our United yeah, more yes. my jobs, and and they're choosing selectively not to do so. So I, I think you, you make a strong point, and, and I mean, look at look at across this country, the travesty. I, it's, it's easy for us to talk about, you know, the percentages of increase. You know, one hundred percent here, two hundred percent there. It, it numbers are impersonal. What's not what's what's what is not impersonal is the names and the people and the families that are all touched in each one of these communities. Absolutely. So at some point, we need to recognize that we're not going in the right direction. Right. When we're seeing the same thing over and over and over, then, then you know, uh, at some point we need to right. recognize we've got a reverse course in some of these uh, some of these decisions. And, and, and it's not just yeah. the
1: DAs uh, yeah. that that are putting us at risk. It's it's also an administration that refuses to secure our southern border. We had a murder in Jacksonville. Uh, a a fellow came across the border, claimed to be 17, uh, claimed that Mr. Cuellar, who lived in Jacksonville, was his uncle. He wasn't, but they already had this arranged through the cartel. And so they flew him to Jacksonville under the catch and release and, um, released him to Mr. Cuellar and Uyoha, Mr. Mr. Uyoha, the suspect wound up killing Mr. Cuellar in Jacksonville only because we have a, uh, an unsafe border, uh, in the South. Yeah. No, no doubt. As we have a lot of challenges, uh, facing
0: us in law enforcement, uh, and, uh, but, but again, it's people like you in, in Washington that are in Congress that are helping us navigate through some of these things. We appreciate your, your strong leadership. I uh, appreciate you joining us today and it, it, I'll give you a final word on, uh, on where we
1: are and, and, uh, and how we're going to get out of this together. Listen, I, I, I think the, the key to this is, uh, we, we have to, as I started, we have to look at crime in America through the whole pie, prevention, intervention, and enforcement. The prevention side is all of the mental health. You know, I, I, I look at uh, documentaries like Seattle is Dying. That, that breaks my heart yeah. to see how they're letting drug dealers, drug users, the mentally ill, simply exist on their streets. Uh, it's horrible. So, so we need that prevention and intervention piece, and then we need a strong enforcement piece as well. Uh, but, but those DAs, they have a responsibility on that intervention side. Listen, it, many times, if 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 you have a DA that is not processing all your felonies uh, that are property crimes, well, guess what? The only time he's going to actually prosecute the guy is after he murders somebody. Well, that's not, that's not the answer. The answer is everybody has to do their job, and we have to get them working together. And uh, I, I think that's the key to this. But every city has the, the tools to address it. They just have to find the political will. To do it
0: uh, and that's that's it, that's the uh that's the magic uh magic right there if you can find a way to get people you have the will and uh, i've always said and, and continue to say that there's not there's not a problem out there we can't fix if we all commit ourselves to to working towards absolutely but i think we've just reached a point in society now where uh we're either right or if i'm right you're wrong and 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 that's the way most people approach it uh, we need to get back to to having some common sense discussions and compromise and finding a ways to, to address these. So uh, again, thank you. Thank you again for all you do, uh, for law enforcement. Thank you for your 41 years in law enforcement. Thank you for continuing your public service and and thank you for being such a strong advocate for us in, uh, in, in Washington.
1: Thank uh, you, Patrick. And, and
0: it's my honor. And I'd like to thank our audience for, uh, for joining us today for this podcast and, uh, and, uh, be safe. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of the blue view hosted by Patrick Yoes, National President of the Fraternal Order of Police. To catch our next episode, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review. To get the latest from the National FOP, make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at GLFOP, and on Instagram at FOPNational. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.